Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm your host. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Adam Tebble, a senior lecturer in political theory here at King's College London. Dr. Tebble conducts research broadly within contemporary liberal political theory, and specifically in classical liberalism, social justice, and the politics of culture and identity. He is author of Hayek, published with Bloomsbury, and Epistemic Liberalism, a Defense, published with Routledge. Adam, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Thanks very much, Irina. How are you? I'm fine. Good, good. So I want to jump straight into your work. And drawing on some of your previous work, you've recently made a new philosophical case for open borders. What's your argument and what's new about it? So I think the most um, innovative side of the argument is that I take the standpoint of those that migrants or immigrants leave behind as the central focus. So in contrast to much of the literature, um, and also regardless of whether you're in favour of more open borders or more closed borders, you see that um, typically the arguments are conducted either with the interests of migrants in mind, sometimes also with the interests of the already resident in mind, um, but comparatively rarely, except in the case of brain drain critiques of immigration, do they take the interests of those left behind into, into account? So with brain drain critiques, people who are slightly more skeptical of um, open borders will say one of the reasons we shouldn't be too permissive with regard to emigration in some cases, but also immigration, is because uh, those migratory flows, especially if they're of highly higher skilled people in developing countries, can issue in detrimental outcomes for the people they leave behind. That's the famous brain drain right, phenomenon. Right. So what I'm trying to do is, in a way, take back some of that territory from the migration skeptics to say that the interests of those left behind can also be appealed to, among a range of other considerations, of course, but they can also be appealed to by those who want to defend a more permissive stance rather than mm -hmm. a less permissive stance. So that's really the novelty of the argument that I'm trying to set out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so how are they benefited, the ones who actually leave behind their countries? So the research project I'm looking at and, and building uh, now uh, focuses on, upon two broad kinds of benefit, which we can conveniently uh, label as economic or distributive benefits and non-economic or cultural uh, kinds of benefit. And so the first one is uh, probably fairly intuitively appealing. It's the idea of remittances, that remittances sent by immigrants specifically, and it needs to be by immigrants, sure. um, have these positive benefits, um, which the epistemic approach to liberalism can, um, can flesh out because they know where the money needs to go to, right? So they're located closer to the ground, as it were, to those who are in need of assistance in poorer countries, family members, loved ones, people whose, whose situations they're familiar with. And so you have this epistemic economic virtue of remittances um, sent by immigrants, which um, is very, very difficult to emulate through other means. We can make a decision if we like as, a, as a, an agent of the state sitting in an office here about what development projects we want to be interested in and want to support. But the question which I like to ask is how epistemically uh, powerful would that be relative to a judgment made by 
a family member of an immigrant. Mm -hmm. And so the immigrants have that kind of access to knowledge which somebody working in a in a bureaucracy wouldn't have. Of course, it doesn't mean that somebody working in a bureaucracy can't make a decision, doesn't know how to. That would be too far too strong a claim. Mm -hmm. The claim rather is that they won't know as well mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. an immigrant. And then the important thing, of course, and this, this is what ties it into the normative case for more open borders, you only get those epistemic economic benefits if it's remittance and sent specifically by immigrants. And in mm -hmm. order for that to happen, you need to have immigration. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, uh, the example I use, it's quite, a, quite an amusing example, I guess, in, in one of the papers I'm working on, is apparently the, uh, the, the sum total of remittances sent from developed to developing countries by migrants is roughly equivalent to the, um, the, the, the economic output of Austria. Mm -hmm. So we could imagine if we were really concerned members of the United Nations, for example, to put all the Austrians to work mm -hmm. in furtherance of global po poverty um, reduction. Now, we don't have to question their intentions. They could all be highly motivated to do so. But the question becomes what kinds of judgments would they make about how those funds should be um, allocated and spent, etc., relative to the kinds of judgments that immigrant networks, including the networks they maintain with family members back home, relative to those judgments, even the most, you know, uh, altruistic Austrians couldn't replicate that kind of epistemic benefit. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is specifically an argument about migration precisely because we're talking about immigrant remittances and not just remittances sent by, say, you and me. Right. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about the nature of evidence in this context. So one of the compelling points that you make is that we don't actually have evidence about social phenomena outside of experimentation and people living their lives and making choices. And so we actually need to discover how people interact and to, and to observe some of the unintended consequences of their interactions to really understand social processes. In a way, it's almost like a call for a radical decentralization of evidence, and it poses a challenge to our views about the nature of expertise. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us more about how we should look at evidence if we're policymakers? Yeah, I mean, that's um, a, a slightly more of a challenge for me, as my background is in political philosophy. But I think the, um, the important message about evidence is that if you have the right sets of institutions in place, then you can take advantage of what we can call these knowledge streams, these informal knowledge streams, which just percolate up out of the day-to-day -day interactions of citizens, of, of ordinary people. Now, the interesting thing I've always found as a, as a philosopher is that from their standpoint, what they're doing is humdrum and ordinary and quite banal. They're just making decisions and choices about what to do with their income or stuff like that. But from the standpoint of theory, that is actually an alternative seedbed, if you will, mm. of evidence about what kind of patterns of behavior are conducive, in this case, to economic betterment and which aren't. So by liberalizing policy, in this case, with regard to the question of migration and poverty alleviation, you avail yourself of a whole seedbed of evidence, as it were, mapped out in the everyday doings of ordinary people. That in, the, in itself can be a very, very powerful knowledge stream also for agents of the state. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine somebody being the archetypal bureaucrat in their office trying to work out, well, what would be the best way of, of alleviating global poverty? Well, actually, if you start to think of, of this issue in terms of marrying up this epistemic perspective with other stuff, other fields of inquiry, which I'm not an expert in, but nonetheless, I know a little bit about them, so big data techniques, things like geospatial predictive modeling, where you track where people move in the case of migration, or you track remittance consumption patterns. And then as an agent of the space, if you avail, uh, an agent of the state, if you avail yourself of that information, which you only get through this more liberalized approach, you can actually make better policy choices yourself. Mm -hmm. It may not be fail-safe. There could be an interesting philosophical discussion about the appropriate standard we're trying to aim for here. There's also a discussion to be had about whether the standard itself that we should be aiming for emerges from those very everyday interactions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really part of the exciting territory when you're looking at these kinds of processes, certainly from a philosophical standpoint. It's not just philosophically interesting. It actually does lend itself to practical application in the world of policy, in the world of governmental decisions, um, and not just for wealthier countries seeking to aid the least well-off in other parts of the world. This would also be uh, information and knowledge streams which poorer country states could make use of, for example, when they're trying to formulate national development programs. So if they can employ big data techniques to see that, what, that in Region A, for example, there's already, already a lot of consumption going on because of immigrant remittances, but not so much in Region B, then that immediately directs them perhaps to, to move their efforts to region B rather than focus so much on region A. So in that, in that sense, you have a process which I call in my work state signaling, that you have this migratory process only made possible, again, to underscore the normative side of the argument, only made possible by more liberalized approaches to migration. You get this process of state signaling. So it's not just good for individual people and their liberty it's also good for concerned agents of the state. Mm -hmm. One of the intriguing things that you argue is that people can actually make governance in their home countries better off by leaving. Are there any empirics on this? What's the mechanism of this improvement? So there's an interesting, um, uh, again, it's a little bit beyond my field, but in, in, in working up this big normative case for a more liberal approach, I, I, you know, by default, I had to, I had to look into this stuff. I'm familiar of the work of two scholars who are particularly noteworthy in this case, and uh, that's Kathleen Newland and Peggy Levitt. And they've done um, quite a bit of interesting work in what we call norm remittance. Now, this feeds into the other part of my project. It's, as I said at the very beginning of our talk, it's not just an argument about the economic epistemic benefits. It's also about what we can call the cultural or the structurally transformative epistemic benefits. And what that means, in effect, is that migrant immigrants not only remit money back home, the famous remittance case, sure. they also remit values, normative commitments, they remit um, their new experiences of living in um, developed countries back home as well. And that can happen in a myriad of ways, right? That can happen through telephone conversations, Skype, regular visits back home. The important point is, is that beyond the actual means by which they do that, they do maintain ongoing sustainable links with those they've left behind, which act as conduits for the transference of these values 
and uh, different, shall we say, normative commitments perhaps to the ones which they were brought up with at home. Um, it's not a fail-safe process. You could remit any kinds of values you like. So the argument can't be that if you have more open borders, you will be guaranteed to get liberal democratic outcomes. That would be to overshoot the claim. Rather, the claim is if you have a more liberalized approach, you make it more likely that um, liberal democratic values, values and political commitments conducive to prosperity, for example, will be remitted along with remittances back home. And so Newland and Levitt have looked into this, what they call social remittances. And there is um, empirical evidence, again, slightly beyond my field, but empirical evidence, which does indeed suggest that uh, indices of corruption are lowered, uh, indices of democratic participation are raised via these kinds of processes. But once again, and to return to that important point from my standpoint as a normative political theorist, you only get that if you have the more liberalized approach. So it's an index link. The degree to which you want that to happen will be the degree to which you'll need to think differently, perhaps more permissively, about migration. But they certainly have um, come up with those um, uh, those kinds of findings. And if I may add, there's also a very, very, perhaps for me, one of the most exciting findings, especially if you're thinking about this within the context of reform in poorer countries. What kind of what kind of future should people in poorer countries be envisioning? Do they want a liberal democratic future? Something else? What 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 does prosperity mean for them? All of those kinds of questions, which activist communities in those countries also want to be answering, right? So they actually have a vision which they can then sell to their fellow citizens. Um, people such as Newland and Levitt have noticed also uh, increased uh, voter turnout, not just amongst those that are directly known to immigrants, family members, close friends and loved ones, but that via a process of imitation, people who live nearby to those people also start to manifest those new dispositions and normative commitments. So you have this ripple out effect where the, the uh, value or norm may be remitted in this informal way from an immigrant back home through Skype, as it were, and then it finds its way out into the community. So you see these increased indices of democratic participation, voter turnout, not just directly with family members, but with those geographically clustered around them, which I find pretty exciting. How do those benefits to families at home and their communities balance with the impact of brain drain itself? Because that still takes away from society. It takes away social capital, education, and uh, expertise. It does. And so any, any judgment that we're going to make overall has to take all of those different things into account. Um, I think on the side of brain drain, you do have this powerful consideration that if the most talented are the ones who are, A, going to be economically in a better position to leave and more motivated to leave, then that could have this negative impact. But I don't think really that the assessment can be as simplistic as that, because the gains in economic and what I call deep structural political transformation, where the actual institutions of the country might, may start to change over time as a result of these uh, remittance flows of, of norms and values, the benefit of that is not necessarily directly comparable in terms of pounds, shillings and pence to the effects of brain drain. So I think that what this really shows, that the, the, the heart of my argument, in a way, is 
effectively telling the political scientists to go and do a little bit more work. That we shouldn't just automatically think that, well, the decisive argument here about migration and borders is the brain drain consideration if we're thinking about the interests of those left behind. Yes, it's there. But what my work does is tell the political scientists, we can't just leave it there. What you can do is take cues from this philosophical argument. I'm not an empirical political scientist. But you can take your cues from this philosophical argument to test Tebbel's theory out, to mm-hmm. test the claims out. And um, we wait for the data, right? That's, I guess really that's what, all that I would say. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do, I guess, is, as I said at the beginning, is to take back some of the territory from the migration skeptics they may win. You know, I'm relaxed about that. That's fine. The empirics will come in. But that's not really my job to win on the empirics. My job is to open minds mm-hmm. and open research minds mm-hmm. in, other, in other research communities to think, well, why don't we test this? There is, as I say, already some evidence there mm-hmm. that it does happen. Whether it's a slam dunk for the open borders people, I'm agnostic about that because, you know, it's just not my job to make those kinds of claims. My job is to make these more normative claims, which guide us perhaps in our future research as more empirically oriented scholars. And who is your audience in this case? Is it social scientists or policymakers? Um, Is it other philosophers? Because I imagine, of course, uh, advocates of open borders are going to be very much in favor of what you're saying. But people in power, particularly, you know, people like President Trump, are not going to be uh, very receptive of these kinds of ideas. So um, who are you targeting? So um, in terms of the specific research outputs that I'm producing, the immediate target will be fellow academic political philosophers. That's what my job description says, so that's what I do. So that would be the initial audience. But of course, you know, one can hope that the uh, basic message of the papers and the research project will get picked up by other people. But I, So it would be beyond just the confines of academic political philosophy, people in the policy area, um, advocacy groups. Obviously, if they find this is conducive to a position they already hold, and it's another set of considerations which they can firm up their position even more with, they're going to do that, right? They're going to welcome that kind of research output, even if I don't directly target it at them as a community, right? Mm -hmm. My community is the academic Mm -hmm. political philosophy community. Um, But I think the other part of your question is significant, right? You have an issue here about, well, whether this really just preaches to the converted, Mm-hmm. So people will, who are already disposed to think in more liberal, permissive terms about migration, whether they're politicians or policy people, of course, they're going to welcome the argument. Um, but what about those against? And that's a real powerful challenge. But I think there is at least the beginnings of a pretty persuasive answer, even to those people. And their question, of course, is, well, that may be true, but why should I be persuaded by this? What I'm trying to say is that it's bad for the already resident here. Um, undercutting of wages. It's bad for the already resident here because of a lack of social and cultural cohesion. Um, It's bad for the people you're uh, trying to say you're defending because of brain drain. How do we speak to them? And I think the debate there shifts to a different part of the um, philosophical territory, which is all about the obligations, if any, that richer states owe to the world's poor. 
and also the obligations which poorer states owe to their own citizens. So you have two aspects of this obligations question. And the way I approach that, again, utilizing this epistemic uh, liberal approach, is to say, well, we can talk notionally about their existing obligations of justice to the least well-off, either on the part of richer states or on the part of poorer states to their own uh, uh, citizens, but that doesn't actually tell us very much about how we identify what those obligations are and, subsequent to that, how we best go about satisfying whatever those obligations are, meeting those obligations of justice. And so, again, the idea of this uh, bottom-up seedbed of knowledge built into the practice of ordinary people, tracking remittance flows, tracking migratory flows, also speaks to the question which even those who are sceptical of migration concede about what obligations of justice are owed to the least well-off. Even those who are sceptical either of emigration, because they're worried about brain drain, or of immigration, because they're worried about the impact, wage compression and stuff like that, upon the already resident, both of those groups of scholars tend to concede that obligations of justice to the world's poor nevertheless exist. And the minute they concede that, epistemic liberals like me can jump in and say, right, how do we identify them? Isn't it the case, actually, even if you are prima facie sceptical of migration, that you need some, you need to avail yourself somehow of an efficacious means of identifying what those obligations are. Now, the get-out for them would be to say, well, of course, then we can just say that there are no obligations of justice. Yeah, you could argue for that. You could argue for that, and we could see the argument and see how persuasive it was, but very few do. In fact, I, I know of almost nobody who does, who thinks that there are no obligations. There may be different obligations. There may be not as um, onerous obligations. Maybe we owe more to fellow citizens in our wealthier countries than we do to what they call global strangers in the literature. Maybe we owe more than that to fellow citizens, but that doesn't mean we don't owe anything to the least well-off. So unless they're prepared to argue that there are no such obligations at all, then they too will ultimately be faced with the question of how we come to know which decisions with regard to meeting those obligations are the best ones. And so, as I said earlier, though the, uh, the uh, immigration flows and remittance consumption patterns can tell them that, they, it can tell states concerned with the least well-off what next they should be doing. Um, and I, so I guess that really is also another part of the quite exciting part of the project, that it's not just about speaking uh, or preaching to the converted. It's also about um, giving those who are ordinarily sceptical of migration, re of, of more liberal approaches to migration, reason nevertheless to endorse it. So let's think of a situation where you have a politician who's very much prone to consider the interests of their own electorate first above and, uh, the interests of the global poor, and at the same time they also believe they have some obligations to the global poor. Uh, you would basically put them in a difficult situation because you would have to say you have to open borders in order to find out how you can best serve the global poor. How do you convince somebody of that? It's a tall ask, right? So the, 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 uh, another thing which I accept right at the beginning of this research project is that I'm offering one set of considerations that politicians and policymakers would have to take into account. I couldn't, I don't think, at least as a serious scholar, be dismissive of wage compression, be dismissive of 
competition in the labour market be dismissed even of things like cultural cohesion or the spread of contagious diseases. There's another set of reasons, right? Public health reasons which people could um, deploy in, in defence of a more sceptical approach. I, I would certainly not want to dismiss those, those considerations. What I'm doing is throwing another ingredient into the soup, right, which we now have to taste to see, okay, well, we've got this other set of considerations. We've already acknowledged that we have at least some obligations of justice. And so Tevel's coming along with this epistemic argument to say, well, how are we going to go about identifying them? Um, I can kind of leave it at that. I say, well, really, again, my job as a political philosopher ends there. Your job is then to try and balance all of those out. I could perhaps go away and do another research project on balancing our considerations, if I can find the time. Um, but for now, I think I would, I would leave it at there. So President Trump is a great example of that. So he's, he's, um, you know, he is on the record as being very, very sceptical of, of certainly of illegal immigration. But we, we could perhaps suspect that it isn't just about illegal immigration. He may have other kinds of reasons, which he hasn't been as upfront with. Um, to date. But nonetheless, I'll just put it to him. You, you, you would have to make the argument that there are no such obligations of justice in order to completely foreclose that option down. The degree to which you open up borders, well, that's interesting. That's when all the other considerations about cultural cohesion, public health, wage compression, labour market can, um, competition, they all come in. But that's not the same as saying that the open borders people don't have a case in accepting that now you have to do a slightly more complex juggling act. You've already conceded the point of the philosopher, as far as I can see. They've already conceded the point. Would I be disappointed were they only to open them a smidgen rather than sufficiently more? Possibly. Possibly as a privately concerned citizen. I may be disappointed with that. But in my role as a political philosopher, which is different from my role or your role as a private citizen, my job is to put something on the table and say that the default position of more open borders must be bad for a whole variety of reasons which are not related to immigrants themselves, um, is just not true. There are, there, are, there are now a set of considerations which people like the President um, of the United States, for example, or anybody else, in continental Europe too, we have these pressures, these populist pressures, they now have to take this into consideration. I don't think, actually, it would be particularly politically convenient, even for them, just to fold their arms and say there are no obligations to the world's poor. They have to worry about the next election, too. So they would have to address this. Again, though, I do concede the degree to which they then, as policy people or politicians, advocate more open borders is something that I can't control for. Luckily, it's not in my job description to control for it. Well, that's the tricky thing about philosophers, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the problem is, can you just say that open borders are theoretically a good idea, but practically Trump's policies to limit migration are entirely justifiable on grounds of national security interests or economic interests and things like that. Yeah, that is a, that is a powerful objection to the position um, that I defend, at least on the surface. Um, but the position I defend, and I do flesh this out in this research, is a position of more open borders, not fully open borders. So, for example, on grounds of public health alone. So we could factor out uh, economic considerations like wage compression or uh, social cohesion. On the grounds of public health alone, 
uh, the skeptical position has a lot of mileage, right? I, I don't know of any scholar who would think it would make sense, even with regard to movement within a country, let alone across international boundaries, not to restrict movement in the case of a tuberculosis outbreak. And so the question about migration now really becomes subservient. The public health issue dominates both considerations, domestic movement and international movement. And that really feeds into my argument about the position I'm defending being a position of more open borders, not fully open borders. And you actually see a parallel there with people who are more skeptical, at least in the academic world. Um, people who are more skeptical of a, this permissive stance to migration just because they're skeptical doesn't mean that they're defending North Korea. Right? They're not defending fully closed borders. So all participants in these debates in the academic political philosophy, philosophy side qualify their arguments in this way. And my argument is qualified from the more liberal stance that I'm defending more open borders, not fully open borders. So the public health consideration will be an obvious one. If you move that aside and say, right, so Adam had already conceded, in line with everybody else pretty much who participates in these debates, that it's not a completely unqualified permissiveness. Then we have this balancing act which Donald Trump or a populist leader in continental Europe would then have to have to play in their mind. Now they could then say, right, you've conceded public health, but I'm just going to say to you that um, the economic interests of US citizens are the most important, not only the most important, but are the only interest I don't think even the president believes that. Um, I don't know of any even populist leader who, again, go back to the discussion we had earlier on about whether they concede at all that there are at least some. All I've got to do is provide an argument to show that they, they accept that there are at least some obligations of justice. They are then, by necessity, in a political situation where they have to balance them out. If that pushes them to a slightly more permissive stance, even if it's not as permissive, perhaps as a concerned citizen, I'd take that. I think the important part of the debate there is that it really is, and, I, and I've discovered this more and more when I, as I read more and more of the literature on migration, it's quite a complicated debate because it's like managing a machine which has lots of buttons. There are lots of different considerations which you have to take into account all at the same time. And as a researcher or as a scholar, you have to frame your own inquiry with that in mind. Hence, these qualifications, these strategic qualifications. But it isn't only scholars and researchers who have to make qualified uh, strategic qualifications. A politician is also doing the same in the very act of admitting that, well, actually, there, there are some obligations of justice. We don't have zero contributions to, to third world poverty uh, funds, etc. We have some kind of contribution. Then my argument makes its appearance again. So I think Donald Trump could say, well, the most important interests are those of US workers, and I can accept that they are a very, very important set of interests. But I've never heard him say that other interests are worth zero. He accepts. He accepts that they are. And I guess that's real world politics for you. It, it is messy. It is about taking on multiple considerations all at the same time and trying to arrive at some political determination which makes sense of them and which balances them in an appropriate way. That's what my contribution is. It's rebalancing that balancing act. It's saying they are not the only considerations which you have to take in hand. But if we take it to its extreme and consider a hypothetical authoritarian populist leader who absolutely refuses to have any commitment to the global poor, 
the citizens of that country are pretty much out of luck in terms of um, advocating for open borders. They are, yes. And I think that's just a political reality. I, I think that, that that phenomenon occurs all the time, and that is the very interface between academic scholarship and politics, especially academic scholarship about politics and politics itself. All we can do at the end of the day is provide uh, strong arguments or evidence for certain viewpoints. We are not executive office holders. It's just not on our contract. At least last time I looked, it wasn't in my... Maybe I should go and check that. Um, it's just not in the contract. You know, it, it, it's, it's a division of labor argument. And so you throw your considerations out there into the public realm, and minds change. If in throwing your arguments out into the public realm, not only the, the policy community and, the, and, and politicians, but the general public through dissemination, etc., become aware of this, their consciousness shifts as well. In fact, you can kind of see that as an example of the very kind of argument we were discussing at the very beginning. Consciousness gets shift, shifted through new experiences, through hearing new evidence, through hearing new arguments. It may be a slow process. It's certainly a non-guaranteed outcome process. We can't know. All we can do is say, here's a set of considerations which we should take in mind. But we can perhaps on balance think that if you do have that uh, occurring and the arguments are persuasive, then eventually, if Joe Public starts to believe in this, then the politicians have to track that. Right? You could run a self-interest argument there about political survival, or actually not even a self-interested one. It could be a public-spirited argument, right, that says whatever the, the, the general view is, so long as it's not too alien to my own views, it's in my public duty to give that expression in a democratic public. And so... Academic political philosophers and everybody else in the academic community, that's what we do. We throw stuff out there into the public realm, which, if it's convincing and it's well-researched and it's well-argued, provides a set of reasons for people to change their mind. So even if President Trump wasn't initially minded to, he may find that after a public exposure of the ideas that there's a shift, maybe even among his own base, if his own base start to say, well, actually, this kind of research, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about this before moments, right? If somebody's electoral base has an I haven't thought about this before moment, then you do have academic political philosophy being, in inverted commas, of use. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think it's necessarily the job, mm -hmm. or at least it's not the first thing academic political philosophers should be thinking of when they embark upon research projects. That's my mm -hmm. view mm -hmm. about, my, about what I do for a living. The first thing I have in mind when I embark upon a research project is that I'm trying to discover the truth about X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That's my first interest is truth. But of course, if there's a, 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 a policy impact, uh, a, an impact in the world of politics, which accords with what I think the truth is, then of course I'm going to be happy. I'm going to feel kind of vindicated about that. But I don't think I can enter into that research with that being my primary objective. Simply not because it's not a good thing to do. It's just that it's not what I do. It's just not what I do. Is there ever a situation in which it's actually okay for an academic to toe the line between the academy and activism? Uh, do you think that that sort of diminishes the role of the search for the truth? Yeah, well, I mean, not necessarily diminish the role for the search for the truth, but I mean, my own, my own view is that um, 
what I do for a living is one thing, and my political views and and moral views as well, which don't necessarily have to be political, um, are another thing. That doesn't mean that's the only way in which one can be an academic political philosopher or political theorist. Right? Lots of them are politically engaged. Um, I've just always understood my own intellectual career not to be about that. Um, I also have there, I think there are important questions there when you are an advocate that at the same time you are serving this public educational function. Now that gets into quite controversial debates about the roles of role of academics um, and political bias on campus and all this kind of stuff, which is now such a hot topic. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, at least in my own case, and I can only speak for my own case, I've always been quite prudent about that. Um, my job is to uh, try and work out, groping in the dark, as philosophers always do, what the truth is, or at least what we think the truth is, and try and convince other people otherwise. But that does not, of course, mean that there is no role for advocacy. It, I think it really is a personal call, mm -hmm. how you understand your own, your, your own intellectual vocation. Mm -hmm. Going back to the issue of migration, would it be fair to say that your argument is pretty much that there are no hard and fast rules about how we develop and craft policy about migration, but one should typically err on the side of experimentation and not in the sense of field experiments, but in letting people live their lives freely and to choose their own modes of governance? Yes and no. And so I'll, I'll take each one in, 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 in order. I, th I think the yes part of the answer is that there is clearly in this epistemic liberal approach great scope for the idea that experimentation provides dividends. Experimentation and failure, experimentation and imitation on the positive side. When somebody sees that what somebody else is doing does have dividends or positive consequences attached to it, then they start doing it too. So the yes side is, of course, this standpoint um, places great store in the positives out of that. But there is also a no side. Actually, I think it is very clear that in adopting that standpoint, we are directing policymakers to a certain policy stance. We are saying that a more permissive approach to migration is going to deliver these benefits, which, of course, as we've already discussed, need to be traded off against all the other things, other considerations. But I think there actually is a quite strong degree of direction with regard to policy. You only get the dividend of experimentation if you have the permissive stance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's normatively quite powerful. Again, to speak to one of the earlier questions we discussed, that is also powerful for people who are instinctively sceptical about migration because of the obligations of justice argument. Let's discuss more broadly the role of experimentation in improving governance. Part of what comes out of your argument is that good governance is this kind of emergent outcome of many human interactions. And the freedom to move and interact gives us this ability to discover human needs and preferences and allows us to tailor public policy accordingly. Philosophically, you draw a lot on liberal thinking in the 19th and 20th centuries from authors like Hume and Hayek and Polanyi who explored ideas about how to engage in what you would call experiments of living. Can you tell us a little bit more about how their contributions shaped your thinking about migration? Yes. Um, 
I started off um, when I was doing my PhD, actually, interested in, in all of these ideas. And the original standpoint or the original research project I embarked upon um, was all about how the state should respond to cultural diversity. So I was looking at what we call these epistemic liberal approaches like Hayek, Mill can be included in there. You've also mentioned Hume, Polanyi, maybe Popper, people who place great store on the, on the importance of questions of knowledge, of social complexity, and of social learning to questions in normative political philosophy. And so I took that standpoint and tried to articulate an argument which was all about whether that standpoint could be applied to questions of cultural diversity and justice. And that culminated in the book, which you mentioned at the beginning of the talk, Epistemic Liberalism. And so that philosophical standpoint also informed the question about how states learn with regard to governance, how states learn with regard to global development strategies. So it's a, it's a, a, a change of tone or a change of uh, theme, but with, the sim- with similar philosophical underpinnings. And so the argument then is all about what are the institutional preconditions which make these social learning processes possible or at least make them as powerful as we could imagine them to be. And that issues in, to cut a very long story quite short, that issues in my argument in epistemic liberalism with regard to cultural identity in a, uh, a liberal account of justice with regard to cultural identity and diversity. And similarly with regard to immigration, it, it, it offers us reasons to adopt a more liberal stance. If you want to get the social learning dividend, if you want to... Uh, act better as a state interested in the upliftment of its own people or interested in the upliftment of distant others, then the argument would go that you should therefore be minded to adopt this more permissive standpoint. Interestingly enough, they weren't the only source for this particular project, and this is what makes the migration project um, different uh, from the project I had done earlier on cultural diversity. And the reason for that is that I also drew upon a literature uh, which perhaps ordinarily one wouldn't consider to be a particularly comfortable bedfellow with the kinds of arguments I make based on the work of people like Hayek and stuff. And this is the, the work on what they call deep structural transformation, the politics and political theory of activism. Um, written by people such as Eric Olin Wright. And so Eric Olin Wright makes a very, very powerful distinction in his book Envisioning Real Utopias between what he calls interstitial strategies and interstitial processes. And the first kind of uh, strategy is what we ordinarily think of when we think about political activism. So you think about Occupy Wall Street or you think about FEMEN, right, the feminist um, activists, And what they do is that they organize themselves in the informal space, right? They don't directly approach or act within the more formal boundaries of politics, the democratic public. They try and get into the nooks and crannies, the interstices, as Eric Olinwright calls them, of the political space by occupying places and and doing um, radical activist um, activities as a way of exerting self-conscious strategic influence upon the direction of their countries and their societies. So they have, they have a utopia in mind, right? They're, they are self-conscious strategic activist actors who have a utopia in mind that they want to bring about 
and they go and try and bring it about. They occupy the uh, plaza outside St. Paul's Cathedral. They, they do something in continental Europe in the city square, which shocks everybody. That's the whole point. It's self-conscious, strategic, um, interstitial action, as Eric Olenreich calls it. But the second part of his distinction about interstitial processes is what fascinated me coming from this background of epistemic liberalism, Hayek, etc., etc. Because there he talks about social and political transformation not as a result of self-conscious strategic exertion, Occupy Wall Street, FEMA, etc., but rather that this uh, deep structural political transformation can occur as an unintended consequence of the individual behavior of countless people. And the example that Eric Olin Wright gets, and I'm not quite sure how happy he would be to hear about somebody versed in Hayek making use of this idea. That could be an interesting discussion of its own. Um, the, the example he uses is the transformation of feudal relations of production into capitalist ones. And the example there is powerful precisely because the, the um, artisans and early traders weren't self-consciously agitating as part of some official political program for capitalism. They were merely taking and spying opportunities to trade with one another, the cumulative result of which was the transformation of feudal um, relations to production. So now, upscaling that to the question of migration, I try to make use of Olin Wright to say, well, this can actually provide us with the intellectual resources to imagine what deep structural and political transformation looks like within poorer countries when it's not immediately obvious where they get their new ideas about utopia from. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're in that situation, it's not immediately clear, especially if you're in a slightly more repressive regime than a less repressive one, where are you going to get a future that you want to agitate from? Where do you get your idea of the future you want to agitate for? They call this in the literature the problem of prefiguration. How do we get an idea of what it is we're striving for? And that's where the argument for more open borders comes in, in, in my view, by marrying up Olin Wright's account of interstitial processes and these Hayekian epistemic liberal insights into the uh, preconditions for the effective transfer and communication of knowledge. How, how does that work? Well, I think what happens is when you liberalize migration policy, as we've already seen, you get these economic remittances, cash payments typically, being sent, but you also get the remittance of norms. And it's the remittance of those norms initially, probably to family members, but then there's a gradual ripple-out effect into the society at large, that that is the way in which activist communities, when they become aware of them, can begin to get an idea of what kind of future they may want to agitate for. They may not want to buy all of it, but that's not the point. It's not a slam-dunk argument that if you do this, this will happen. It's all about likelihood and balance of probabilities. If you have this more permissive approach, it is more likely that liberal democratic norms or prosperity-enhancing norms are going to be migrated across international boundaries. For initially, family members, close loved ones and friends to think about and cogitate about, but also to be taken up by activist communities in those countries. Now they're beginning to get this clearer idea, maybe mingling it in with their own already existent normative commitments, right? It's not going to be some clean process. Um, and so I think that mixture of the epistemic liberal approach and Eric Olin Wright's account 
of interstitial strategies and processes is really powerful there because it gives us a way of imagining what deep structural transformation looks like by bypassing the state. Mm. And that's the, the really is the, I think, perhaps the, the crucial point here. You, you mentioned earlier, Irina, about um, self-interested local political elites, right? So we could imagine um, a less developed country or a developing country where the local elites have absolutely no interest in seeing anything change. They actually may also like it migration out, right? Because it gets rid of restive populations. But woe betide them. Right, the epistemic arm would say, "Well, you may want that to happen because you think it could be in your interest." But actually, in divesting yourself of these populations, you're actually increasing the chances of norm migration back in the other direction. Now, note that that instigates a process in which they don't have any direct say. It happens despite the presence of their state power, mm-hmm. and in no way because of it. So people are just on Skype. They're sending an email. They're visiting home and chatting on their front veranda. That's how those new ideas get disseminated. So you have this idea, which I think the epistemic liberal um, viewpoint really captures quite powerfully with the help of people like Eric Olin Wright, that you have this idea of deep structural transformation bypassing the state. It's interstitial, right? It's not about directly engaging with your own state. In some of these countries, that could be quite a dangerous thing to do. So the virtue of the informality is the power of the informality there. It's its virtue. Mm-hmm. It, the fact that it doesn't directly engage, but it creates an idea of a new vision to be agitated for. Now, there can be risks within co-opting those ideas and then turning them into strategic um, end goals, right? That, that goes back to the other part of his distinction. You can see this interstitial process eventually giving rise to activist communities saying, we self-consciously want to endorse these values. So they will transform that process into a strategy. That could come with risk, right? If you directly challenge the state in that way, you may provoke a very, very severe counter-reaction. But again, I don't think that undermines the idea of more open borders making that possible. It's about expanding possibilities, right? It's not saying that if you do this, this will happen and everything will be wonderful. That would be, I think, very unrealistic on the part of any political philosopher to make that kind of argument. It's just way too strong. The claim is way too strong. Mm -hmm. Rather, what we're saying is it's about likelihood. If you understand how these processes work, you are more likely to have this kind of transformative effect. Mm. And talking about deep structural transformation, I think it's interesting uh, that we are talking about this long-term view of human betterment, of human enrichment, because it takes a long time for experiments of living to play out, for social learning to sort of help us discover the right uh, ways to conduct policy and to direct resources in the right places. But at the same time, what if we're missing out on urgent social needs that need centralized government decision-making here and now? So you can apply this argument about social learning and experimentation in both the context of migration policy and also in, in terms of national policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it takes a long time for, for people to just act and then the government to discover. And it does seem to be a little bit dismissive of the role of the state in in various ways. Mm -hmm. So what would you say about the role of the state in in terms of taking care of urgent issues? Great point. Um, So my view doesn't dismiss the role of the state um, at all. Uh, it, It factors in a very, very important role of the state. And we can see it in two ways. So the first way it does that is by 
acknowledging that it is the state which uh, secures the rights and liberties and protections which make these kinds of processes possible in the first place, right? They only occur because we are uh, living under a regime of protected rights and liberties. And so the state has a role in, in securing those, securing us against personal aggression, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a second way in which the state also has a role. I think, for example, you could imagine immediate catastrophic events, earthquakes, volcanoes, the, the humanitarian disaster kind of events, which are immediate and sudden. There, you could see that the uh, scaling problem of this more epistemic approach may face a difficulty, right? That, that it, it, it is not as quickly reactive. So I would be, for now, happy as a philosopher to concede that that would be an area where we say you know, that the state, precisely because it is a centralised actor, has to do something there. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean there's not a whole plethora of other stuff which it doesn't do or it, it, can be, it can be predicted not to do as well as the alternative approach that I'm setting out. And even with regard to things like poverty alleviation, because that you could think would be one of the prima facie areas. Say, oh, well, come on, Adam, that would be terrible. You can't just you know, allow that to happen. It's, we're talking about immediate, immediate needs, people undergoing hardship and suffering, all that real, you know, powerfully morally compelling stuff. But I don't think that's necessarily the right question to ask. What we actually are trying to do, I think, in, in advancing this kind of position is to say that ultimately, especially with regard to things like poverty alleviation, this will come down to, if we assume relative unanimity about the moral aspiration to reduce poverty, it will ultimately come down to specific in-situ decisions about what resource needs and priorities should be addressed first of all. And that immediately begs the question which people like Hayek in the 20th century raised so powerfully about the relevant economic knowledge problem. It's just not the case that we are au fait with the sum totality of circumstances we need to be au fait with in order to make the right decision about resource use. So when people, um, and many colleagues have, have have argued, made that point with me, I, I tend to concede the moral urgency, but don't think that that concession also automatically leads to a further concession about, therefore, the state should be is the best placed entity or agent to affect whatever needs to be affected to happen. Um, If you take seriously the claim that the knowledge of the circumstances relevant to to deciding which needs are urgent, what combinations of resources and bundles of products go together best to satisfy those needs, where the relevant resources need to be extracted from, in what ways they need to be combined, how they should be delivered to these people. All of those questions are what I call in situ questions. They're questions whose answer is determined by localised, often very, very fleeting knowledge of local conditions and resource needs and availabilities. It's just not the kind of knowledge that a centralised decision-making mechanism can make. And there are loads of candidate centralised decision-making mechanisms we could think of, right? I can name a few right now. Authoritarian rule. 
that's a decision-making process. Yeah, it is. Not a particularly pleasant one, if you ask me privately, but it is one. I, I, the kingdom of me. I get to decide everything. That's one way of making the decision. Here's another one. Democracy. Yeah, that's another decision-making procedure. There's also a bit of social learning in there, even with authoritarianism. There may be a little bit of social learning in there if they, you know, if they can move their ego aside for a second and say, wow, that wasn't really the right call. Similarly, in representative democracy, we kick them out, right? Kicking them out is a part of social learning. It's a feedback mechanism. So the argument from the epistemic liberal side cannot be that we have bought up all the rights to social learning. No, it's which account of social learning is the more powerful one. So if you are worried about ongoing um, uh, symptoms and importantly with regard to the deep structural problem, causes of poverty... I still would make the argument that the epistemic liberal approach is uniquely beneficial because it takes seriously the fact that the knowledge of the circumstances and conditions relevant to making the right judgments is not centralizable in the way that the kingdom of me or representative democracy often tend to assume. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. And to all our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We'd like to give you an opportunity to engage with the argument further in a blog interview with Adam, where he can answer your follow-up questions to our conversation. If you'd like to ask Adam a question, simply email it to us at info at csgs.kcl.ac.uk. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and live events on the Cutting Edge Debates and Governance by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is CSGS KCL. We look forward to seeing you again very soon on the Governance Podcast.